Have you ever wondered what a day in the life of Jesus looked like? We have a bit of a fascination. I feel like the YouTube algorithm thinks I really want to know what the day in the life of a lot of different people looks like. So I get all these recommendations. The day in the life of a corporate lawyer, a day in the life of a brain surgeon, a day in the life of a professional athlete or something. We, we like this idea of knowing, uh, kind of getting a, an over-the-shoulder view of what someone's day looks like. And it had me thinking, what would a day in the life of Jesus look like? Have you ever wondered that? Well, in our passage today, we get exactly that. Wonder no longer what a day in the life of Jesus looked like. Now, the Gospels uh, tell the story of Jesus' life. Uh, But a lot of times we can kind of assume that they're just kind of snippets of a day and little highlights. It's a bit of a highlight reel. And we can also know that that obviously not all of Jesus' days look the same. Actually, quite the opposite. A a lot of things happen in Jesus' life and ministry. But what we find in Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 34, is really one day. We get a morning, we get an afternoon, and we get an evening. And we hear about what Jesus is doing. And so would you turn there in your Bibles, Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 34. If you don't have a Bible, uh, if you don't have a Bible with you here this morning, uh, we would love to give you a Bible to use. You can grab one over on the table there. Uh, And if you don't have a Bible that is yours, or you don't know if you have a Bible, or know where it is, or it's not in a translation that you can read, you can keep that Bible. That would be our gift uh, to you. But turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 34. And once you've found it, would you stand for the reading of God's word? This truly is God's word for us today. And if you believe that to be true, when I finish reading, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord. Uh, And if you believe that, would you join me in saying, thanks be to God. Let's hear God's word from Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 34. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out in a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her. And she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You can take a seat. What I want to do this morning as we look at this passage is just walk through it essentially verse by verse and see what it teaches us about Jesus. And as we do, we're going to see not only things about Jesus, we're going to see various responses to Jesus, which again is really the overarching theme of what we see in this series through the Gospel of Mark. We're asking the question, who is Jesus? And as we looked last week, what is the right response to Jesus? And so I hope you know that there are right responses to Jesus and there are wrong responses to Jesus. And each of us will respond to Jesus in one way or another. There is no room for indifference. And so as we look at this day in the life of Jesus, I'm sure you already saw there's dramatic and then there's less dramatic. There's words, there's deeds, there's miracles. We see the ordinary and we see the extraordinary. But most of all, we see Jesus. And when we see Jesus for who he is, that ought to change everything. So let's jump in. Verse 21. And they were in, uh, and they, that is Jesus and his disciples, remember, he just called his disciples and they followed him. And so they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he, that is Jesus, entered the synagogue and was teaching. So nothing too crazy going on yet in verse 21. Uh, Capernaum is in a reasonably big town in the northwest uh, side of the Sea of Galilee. If your Bibles have maps in the back, this is what they're for. You can look at those maps and see uh, what's going on here, where are we at, kind of get your bearings. If you like geography, uh, you have my blessing to turn there now. And look, if you want to see where Capernaum is, where the Sea of Galilee is, just kind of get your bearings on the geography of the scene here. But these are real places. And what we know about Capernaum is a lot, uh, both through history and through archaeology, as well as through what the Bible teaches us. Now, we know Jesus is from Nazareth. We even get that uh, clue right here when the demon is speaking to Jesus, and he calls him Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, But there are many places in the Bible where it's clear that during Jesus' earthly ministry here, from this point forward, and maybe even a bit before, Capernaum is a bit of a home base for him. Uh, This is kind of uh, the the spot where he, he launches out from. And so we see that they go to Capernaum. Again, it's close to the Sea of Galilee, this fishing area, this fishing hub. And uh, on the Sabbath, uh, which is a Saturday, now Sabbath went from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. We're going to see why that matters later when the sun eventually goes down and then people go to find Jesus. But it's the Sabbath. And the Sabbath was this day of for rest and for worship. And so what the Jews would do on the Sabbath, Sabbath is they would go to the synagogue for worship. They would go to hear the Torah or the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, read and explained. Now, we can get confused sometimes with what, is, what the buildings are, how the Jews would worship at the time. Uh, for now, you can just draw a distinction between the synagogues and the temple. There is one temple, uh, which is Again, in Jerusalem, it's where sacrifices would be made. It's where the priests were. But there were synagogues, which were these smaller, literally, the the word synagogue, it, it just means gathering places. It was just where people congregated. It was where Jews got together to worship. Now, typically, there was a ruler of the synagogue who uh, didn't really function like we might imagine. If we imagine synagogues kind of like churches, uh, how we would imagine a church today, uh, we would think, oh, there's you know, a pastor of the church. Now, there's rulers of the synagogue, but they 
wouldn't be the primary teachers at the synagogue. They did a lot more of the administration. They may kind of function as librarians of the scrolls. They may even be a school teacher kind of thing, uh, even maintaining the place. That was sort of the role of the ruler of the synagogue. But the teaching ordinarily fell on a variety of people. Often lay people would just, uh, someone who was literate, obviously, you had to be able to read the Torah and explain. So someone who was learned would come and teach. They would read God's word and they would teach from it. And so what Jesus is doing here is not altogether strange. It's not presumptuous of him to walk in and say, listen to me, you know. It's not, he's not out of place. It would be normal for someone to go up and teach uh, from the Torah. And so that's what Jesus does. Right? Just like here, there's things that are ordinary that we do. We have a pretty set order of how things operate here. And so uh, this is what's going on here. Things are looking normal on this Saturday in Capernaum. But uh, that is until they're not normal anymore. We get this in verse 22. And they, that is the people that were in there, were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. They were astonished. This wasn't just a great sermon. Jesus is teaching with authority. Not as the scribes, right? The scribes had authority. They had, uh, who, who were the scribes? I guess that's a good question for us to ask. Well, the scribes were the educated. They were the elite. They were the scholars. They would have been the theological PhDs of the day. Those who knew the scriptures, uh, their, their job, literally their job was to discern these truths and, and help people apply these truths to understand uh, legal things and to, to work through the law. And so they had a level of authority, both in their credibility as a scribe, uh, as well as the authority of God's word, the word that they declared and studied. But we see there's a distinction here between Jesus and this authority of the scribes. Because it says, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Now we see the scribes, just because you see the word scribe or religious leader throughout uh, the New Testament doesn't automatically mean they're a bad guy. Uh, But we see most of the time they are bad guys. So when we do bump into the scribes, I think all but one time in the Gospel of Mark, it's bad news. Because they are upset that Jesus is coming and teaching with authority. And we can understand that, right? There is a logical understanding of why the scribes would be so upset. It would be as if, here, I'm saying this is our authority here at Heritage Grace Church. I'm up here explaining it. I'm up here teaching it. But I don't claim that my words are authority. So what, what this would be looking like, the, why everyone was shocked and astonished, is Jesus was coming up and not just saying, there is authority, let me tell you about it. He's saying, I am the authority. Let me tell you about it. And so they're rightly, well, the scribes we'll see eventually are rightly rightly angry if Jesus does not actually have authority. Now, we're going to see very clearly Jesus does have authority, uh, and so they are very misguided in their opposition. But people are rightly astonished because Jesus is not just coming and teaching and pointing to Uh, again, how the scribes would teach is they'd be saying, uh, let's look at the Torah. This is what God says. Or they'd be saying, this is what so-and-so says about what God says. But again, Jesus was doing something very 
different. Now, in our passage this morning, we don't get a description of every word of Jesus' sermon here uh, on this Saturday in Capernaum. But we do get a summary of his teaching as we looked at last week in Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. Right? It says that Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel. Right? That means good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And so we see Jesus is teaching already set the stage here. He's saying the kingdom of God is at hand. Something big is going down. But we also get descriptions all throughout the Gospels of Jesus' teaching. Maybe most notable or most pointed would be maybe the most famous sermon in all of history, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel. As Jesus teaches, what is that repeated refrain we hear over and over? Jesus isn't simply saying that uh, this is God's instruction. Here's what God says. He's saying, this is what I say. Right? We remember that refrain. He, he says, you've heard it said, but I say. He's teaching as one who had authority. This is why people are stunned. This is why people are astonished. And this is why, again, as we'll see later, the scribes and the religious leaders hate him because he's not soft-pedaling some recycled sermon that they've heard before. He is taking God's word and saying, this is about me. He is teaching as one who had authority. This is a central point of what we learn about Jesus here, that there is no one with more authority than Jesus. There is no one with more authority than Jesus. We see this clearly in his teaching, right? And they were astonished by his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. But we also see this in his actions. Look at verses 23 and 24. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Okay, so this is where things get even crazier. Right? There's just this ramp up of our passage this morning where things are starting to get uh, literally a little bit wild. And we see that Jesus' authority is on display in his teaching, uh, but we also see that his authority is on display in his actions, because uh, immediately it says in this synagogue, whether this man comes bursting in through a door or whether he was already in there and he just stands up, all of a sudden it becomes very clear to everybody in the room, there's a man here with an unclean spirit. Now this is the first time uh, throughout the Gospel of Mark where we encounter evil spirits and demonic activity. Uh, at least in a way that it afflicts individuals, again, different than when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan. Here we have demonic activity that's affecting people's lives. And the Bible is clear that there is evil in this world beyond sinful people, but neither here nor anywhere else in Scripture do we get a a concise summary or uh, an excursus that breaks down exactly all that we might want to know about Satan or Uh, the demonic. But what we can know is that according to Scripture, this is real. As we read the Gospels, there seems to be a particularly high concentration of this demonic activity during Jesus' ministry. As his ministry unravels and unrolls, we uh, see that really it's as if all hell is breaking loose. There is uh, serious opposition to what Jesus is doing. 
And we see throughout Scripture from the very beginning and all through that, that Satan is crafty. He is powerful and he is smart. His goal is to have people turn away and hate God. In the Gospels, we see this actually happening, right? There's people who accuse Jesus of himself having a demon uh, because there's these people that are afflicted by these demons and then he is the authority to cast them out. And so Satan is using this as he uses uh, different tactics all throughout history and all around the world to try to turn people away from God. We know that he is active in the world. The Apostle Peter describes him prowling around like a lion looking for someone to devour. But he will use different tactics. Now, some have argued that uh, we have a bit of a caricature sometimes in our mind of the people in the first century. And, and I don't say this to be condescending. I think we can all do this sometimes. We can think, man, these people just weren't very smart. Right? They, they didn't understand these miracles that were happening. They didn't understand this demonic activity. So they tried to explain it away by something. And so a lot of times we can maybe hear or even think ourselves, well, this is probably just some psychotic episode. This is maybe just some mental illness, and they don't know how to explain it, so they're attributing it to the demonic realm. Well, we see even in our text here that Mark draws very clear lines between disease and demonic activity. He does that twice later in the text, in verse 32 and verses 34. We need to read our whole Bibles and not fall into the ditches that we maybe are so often tempted to fall into. And so just a few kind of quick qualifiers and warnings and disclaimers as we think about spiritual warfare and demonic activity. There's three ditches that we could fall into. The first would be probably what most of us are guilty of here in the room is downplaying uh, and refusing to talk about uh, these kinds of things. Right? Maybe because it's unfamiliar in our culture, in our society. Maybe because it's scary. But we can see that Satan could certainly use that tactic. Uh, he would love nothing more than for us to pretend that he and his minions don't exist. The second ditch that we could fall into would be to develop an unhealthy obsession. Uh, this is the opposite extreme. Uh, but this can result in dangerous things. This can result in an uncomfortable familiarity or... Uh, even an irrational fear. There is a level of warning when we, we bump into these kinds of passages, but we do see very clearly in Scripture that if we resist him, he will flee from us. We see very clearly, as I prayed in our pastoral prayer, uh, that God has given us armor for this battle. And so we don't want to develop an unhealthy obsession. Jesus is authoritative over all things, even evil spirits. And then the third ditch we could fall into is closely related, but we, we maybe are tempted to cheapen the demonic realm uh, to a bit of a caricature of the devil and demons. Don't fall for that concept of a silly devil with horns and a pitchfork. Don't give the time of day to pop stars and movies that think that they're edgy or entertaining to play fast and loose with this stuff. There's nothing funny or cool about this topic. And so there's lots more to say on this topic. I actually have a book that I found particularly helpful. It's called Did the Devil Make Me Do It? If anyone's interested in this topic, uh, it's super short. Come find me after the service. I'd love to give this to you. Really helpful book on an important topic, uh, but one that we can fall into many ditches in as we think about. But in this event, we see that, again, there is no one more authoritative than Jesus. There is no one with more authority than him. The demon says, what have you to do with us? Essentially, what's he saying? He's saying, what do you want, Jesus? 
This is my territory. But Jesus rebukes him, says, be quiet, come out of him. He boldly exercises his authority as the son of God to rebuke this demon. There is no one with more authority than Jesus, not the greatest teachers, not the worst demons. Jesus doesn't come into the synagogue and try to wow people with his flashy oratory and rhetoric. He astonishes them as one who teaches with authority. He doesn't rhyme off some Harry Potter-like spell or incantation to try to outwit this oppressive evil spirit. In a word, he commands it to get lost. What did we hear earlier in our preparation music? The prince of darkness grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. There is no one with more authority than Jesus. It says in verse 27, And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Could you imagine being there? Right? Don't disconnect ourselves from this story too much. Could you imagine this scene happening? Imagine a day like today, likely less snowy in Capernaum, but imagine a day like today, you come to church like you're here, and you realize, oh, there's a guest preacher today. I wonder what he's going to be all about. And then he preaches this sermon in a way that you've never heard someone preach before. He doesn't just point to authority. He is authority. And then while you're still working through that and trying to wrap your head around that, all of a sudden some person bursts in through the door or stands up and starts screaming at the preacher, right, saying, what do you want? What are you all about? I know who you are, right? This is not just some ordinary heckler, not that we have hecklers here very often or ever yet. Uh, Don't get any ideas today. Uh, But I don't know what a demon would sound like. But I don't imagine it was a comforting, warm tone, right? This would have been a terrifying experience. And then in a word, effectively, Jesus says, shut up and get out. And I don't say that for shock value. That's what he does. He has that kind of authority. And so what would you be thinking at this point? Well, I can tell you what you'd be thinking. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits. And they obey him. And then obviously, imagine if that actually went down, right? Which it did, but imagine if that went down today, which it won't. uh, Word would spread. Be like, man, did you hear what happened in Breslau this morning? It's crazy. So word spreads in verse 28. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. But then we see the story continues. We get another one of the many immediately, Mark's favorite word, and immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew and James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately, there it is again, they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. What we have here is a bit of an understated story. It's not super dramatic if we compare it with other miracles, right? But it's no less amazing. I can kind of apply this concept in my own mind because we can just roll over this passage, right? Because right before is this crazy scene in the synagogue, and then right after, literally the entire town comes to the door. Uh, So there's crazy things going down. And we can kind of forget this little section in the middle. 
But we do ourselves a disservice of, of thinking just because it's less dramatic, meaning it's less significant. Again, I can apply this to my own life. I watched the show Prison Break years ago. I don't know if anyone's watched this show. I don't even remember enough about it to recommend it or not. But I watched this show, and as you can understand by the title, has this elaborate prison break and multiple prison breaks. Spoiler alert. So there's lots of, it's, it's intense. It's crazy. Uh, he tattoos the blueprint of the prison on his body. Does anyone remember that? Okay. So prison break, the show. And then someone said, oh, you like prison movies and shows. You should watch Shawshank Redemption. It's one of the greatest movies of all time. And I think, right on. I'll go watch Shawshank Redemption. And I was so disappointed because I thought it was going to ramp up the complexity and the drama of Prison Break. But it, you'll be disappointed if you're expecting that kind of movie. Now, it's a much better movie than the show Prison Break. But we can do this as we read the Bible. We can run into dramatic, intense, kind of crazy things, and we can forget about what the seemingly ordinary. But we'll see that there's nothing ordinary about this scene in Simon Peter's house. Because what Jesus does here is exercise his authority, but he also starts to exercise his power. We see that there is no one with more power than Jesus. There is no one with more power than Jesus. He goes to Simon's place. The disciples all tell him, Simon's mother-in-law is sick. Right? There's not a lot of filler here, but Jesus goes to her. He takes her by the hand. He lifts her up. She's healed. Again, without a word, she's fully restored. Now, I love modern medicine. It is a good gift from God to us. But we see here with Simon's mother-in-law, there's no four-week recovery. She's immediately fully healed, and she begins to serve them. There is no one with more power than Jesus. Jesus' authority and power are on display, not simply to build up this little empire. I love that he does this in relative secrecy, right? He does this in the confines of a home with just only a few witnesses, right? But he doesn't go around trying to pump up his own popularity like many false teachers and charlatans that we might think of even today. It actually seems like he's trying to do the opposite, as we'll see over and over. He keeps telling people to be secret about these things because he needs his mission to unravel his way. We see that at the very end of this text where he says he did not permit the demons to speak. He doesn't want to build a crowd on false information or simply miraculous deeds. Because what is Jesus doing here? We are right in part to say as he casts out this demon and as he heals uh, both Simon's mother-in-law as well as all these other people that come to the door once the Sabbath is over, uh, we see that he is demonstrating his authority, he is demonstrating his power, but it's not only that. It's not only a flex of just who he is. Because remember his message in verse 15 of chapter 1? It says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Well, what's the kingdom of God? I love Graham Goldsworthy's definition. He talks about the kingdom of God being God's people in God's place under God's rule. God's people in God's place under God's rule. A perfect example of God's kingdom we can see is in the beginning when God creates the heavens and the earth and he creates this garden paradise for his people to live and he creates man and woman to dwell in it. That is God's people in God's place under God's rule. But we see that that gets absolutely obliterated when sin comes into the world. 
We see that as sin comes in, so does evil and the destruction that comes from that. As we see the consequences of literally the curse of sin being death and disease. So what's Jesus doing here? Well, he is demonstrating his power and authority, but we also see that he is living out the message he's proclaiming, that the kingdom of God is at hand. He has come to restore the kingdom of God to the way that it was meant to be. His authority and his power demonstrate that the kingdom of God is coming closer and closer. His teaching with authority is the proclamation that the kingdom of God is at hand. But then as he casts out this demon, he's demonstrating a a foretaste of a day when there will be no more evil. He's demonstrating that he has power over even that. Just as we read in our assurance of forgiveness earlier this morning. It was at the cross and in his resurrection where Jesus laid the death blow to death. He disarms and puts to open shame the evil forces. Because at one time we all were slaves to various passions and pleasures. We were dead in our sin. As Paul writes further in Ephesians 2, we were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. But because of what Jesus did, we have been made alive. That evil that enslaved us is disarmed. The sin that threatened to condemn us is paid for in full by Jesus. This is the good news. At the cross, Jesus was bruised by the evil one as he died for the sins of the world, but he crushed the serpent's head. It was finished on the cross. And so just as Jesus powerfully heals the physical disease and the suffering of those who come to him, we get a foretaste of God's restored kingdom, of a day when there will be no more suffering, no more pain, no more oppression, no more disease. And even more amazing, somehow we get this foretaste of Jesus, one who has power to heal, not only to heal physical disease and ailments, but he has the ability to heal even our dead and corrupted Jesus' power and authority is displayed as, as in his earthly ministry, he comes to restore things the way that they were meant to be. It's just a shadow of what his entire mission is, that he would come to sacrifice his own life to restore us back to God. You see, this is we were meant to be in a right relationship with God. Each and every one of you were created in God's image to glorify him. But each of us, because of our sinful rebellion, have fallen short of the glory of God. That relationship between us and God has been severed. And so God is a good and fair judge. He will punish sin. But the good news of the gospel is that that is not the end of the story. The good news of the gospel is that he sent Jesus into the world, his only son, to come and live a sinless life, to restore this kingdom Jesus came to live this sinless life, yet die as a substitution for sinners. He would rise in victory over death itself. And if we would turn from our sin and trust in him, coming to him in faith, we who are crippled by the disease of sin can be healed in full. This is not simply a band-aid for a dead heart. We need a new heart. And the hope of the gospel is that's what we receive in what Christ has done for us. His sinless perfection can be credited to us since he took on our sin in full. And we may read passages like this and we may look at these kinds of miracles where Jesus heals and we may long to see that kind of miracle. We may long to see that kind of power demonstrated. Well, friend, if you are a Christian, you are that miracle. 
You are a walking, talking example of what Jesus can do. That he can restore even your dead heart, even my dead heart back to life. By looking around this room this morning, by joining yourself to a church and regularly gathering with them, you have the opportunity to live out this kind of miracle, this kind of reality in a way that is a far grander fulfillment than the people who crowded at this door at Simon's house 2,000 years ago. Look around and see Jesus' power and authority as you see blood-bought sinners who declare Jesus as their Savior and Lord. There is no one with more authority. There is no one with more power. But be honest, when I say that, if you think of someone that has all the authority in the world, all the power in the world, what do you think of? It's, it's scary. But what matters very much that we also know that there is no one with more mercy than Jesus. There is no one with more mercy than Jesus. This is Jesus' entire MO. Jesus could have come however he wanted. He's the king He could have come as a fair judge and immediately wiped humanity off the face of the earth to restore God's kingdom, but he didn't. He could have come as a conquering ruler, expecting to be served and doted upon, but he didn't. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He could have not come at all. He doesn't owe us anything, but there is no one with more mercy than Jesus. He came for his people. He not only descended to the level of humanity to save humanity, he descended to the grave so that ultimately, in a spiritual sense, we don't have to. No one in the history of the world deserved the punishment for sin less than Jesus, and yet he took it all on himself. There is no one more merciful than Jesus. He knows our need And so he comes to us like he came to Simon's mother-in-law. This is the sweetness of the good news. Don't miss it just because it's familiar. This news is better than anything we could ever imagine. God didn't simply make a way for us to just get our act together and then to muster up enough faith to decide that we would come to him. The gospel is that he comes to us. He takes us by the hand. He lifts us up out of the miry pit. That is good news because we could never come to him on our own. There is no one with more authority, no one with more power, and yet no one with more mercy than Jesus. I thought about ending the sermon here, but I think it's important that we realize that that's not enough to just acknowledge those things. It's not enough to just ascend to that height intellectually because knowing this information isn't enough. We could look, uh, it's possible to know a lot about religion, even a lot about the Bible, even to be the most faithful in doing all the most religious things and still reject Jesus. This is what we see in the way that the scribes conducted themselves, who Jesus is compared to here. We'll see this as the Gospel of Mark unravels. They did all the right things, but they missed Jesus. You see how this could be true? 
We could read all the right books on doctrine. We could have all the education, all the degrees in theology that you would want. You could have the best attendance record, the best service record in the church, but you could fail to see Jesus in all of his power, all of his authority, and all of his mercy. We should read good books. We should study doctrine. We must go to church. But those things don't save you. Jesus saves you. Or it's possible, too, to to love the idea of Jesus. Lots of people love the idea of Jesus. It's possible to love the idea of Jesus as our Savior, but we fail to see him as a true authority, that we would fail to recognize him as our Lord. Don't be like the people who just rush to Jesus when it's convenient to try to get something out of him. We apply the deadly tonic of chasing our best life now, thinking that the gospel, that the good news is somehow just this promise of health and wealth and prosperity. Friend, that's not good news because we're missing out on the king. There is no one more authoritative than Jesus. And if this is true, we can't miss the response of Simon's mother-in-law. We can't miss what she does. She immediately serves him. Many of us love the idea of a savior, but we think of serving him with all of our lives. Well, that's not what we signed up for. And maybe most shocking is looking at the demons. They ace the theology exam. They nail it, right? They, throughout the Gospel of Mark, they have the most accurate assessment of who Jesus is. Right, look at what they say. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. At the very end, it says, he did not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. This is a scary wake-up call for us that it is possible to know exactly who Jesus is and still hate him. Don't miss that. Remember the very clear application from Jesus' preaching that we looked at last week. What does he say? He says, repent and believe. As James writes, even the demons believe and they shudder. But they believe, but they don't repent. They don't turn from their evil ways. We may be stunned to think that that's, that that's even possible. How could they know exactly who Jesus is? How could they know exactly who he is in all of his authority, all of his power, even all of his mercy, and still reject him? Well, this isn't only application for demons. I was reading this biography last night of John Payton, uh, who is a missionary who went to the New Hebrides, the southern seas, to go share the gospel with uh, cannibals. It was, it's a crazy story. You should read the story of John Payton. But before he went to become a missionary, he was a minister in Scotland. And listen to this. Uh, this just jumped off the page as I was thinking about this sermon. It says, It was here within the cobbled streets of Glasgow that Peyton's pastor's heart was forged. He tasted the joys of seeing drunks who could not pray turn from their sins and believe. But he felt the sting, too, of the hardened heart. As Peyton sat beside a man on his deathbed, the dying man hoisted his fist to God, exclaiming, I believe there is a devil and a God and a just God, too, but I have hated him in life and I will hate him in death. Peyton saw that men love darkness rather than light in every culture. It would not be beyond us to get this wrong, 
where we could have a right view of who Jesus is and still reject him. This is what we all do when we refuse to turn from our sin and trust in Christ alone for salvation. You've heard about Jesus today. You've heard the need to turn from your sin and trust in Christ alone. Maybe you've heard that dozens, even hundreds of times before. We have followed a life, a day in the life of Jesus. We've seen that there is no one with more authority, no one with more power, no one with more mercy than Jesus. Don't reject him. Don't harden your hearts towards him. Trust him. He died to save you. He is that powerful, and he is that good. He is that strong, and he is that kind. He is that authoritative, and he is that merciful. That's the big idea from Mark 1, 21 to 34, that there is no one with more authority, power, or mercy than Jesus. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to him. This is Jesus, the one seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. This is Jesus. His authority is astounding. His power is amazing. And his mercy, it's stunning. This is what a day in the life of Jesus displays. What a savior. Heavenly Father, we are astonished to think of Christ, to again be amazed at the glorious gospel that saves and transforms. But God, help us not to miss Jesus, to think that if we do all the right things that simply will measure up. Help us to see him as our Savior. And Father, help us not to miss Jesus as our Lord. Help us not to just come uh, looking for what we can get, but that we would come recognizing Jesus in all of his authority. And Lord, help us not to harden our hearts to all that Jesus is and truly respond in repentance and belief. Heavenly Father, as we share in the Lord's Supper together, help us to think deeply about this Savior our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.